This is your Olympic hero and former WWE champion, Kurt Angle. And I just wanted to give a shout out to my guys, Clint and Noah. When it comes to covering sports, there is no one better. And believe me, that's true. It's damn true. Kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine right, jet flying, son of a gun. I am the best in the world at what I do. Gentlemen. You are the top 1%. The elite. Best of the best. But the cream will rise to the top, oh yeah. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. You are now listening to the Elite Sports Podcast. Brought to you by Mo Sports in Liberty. The pinnacle of hard-hitting sports talk. Featuring weekly expert analysis and top-notch interviews. And now, please welcome your hosts, Clint Schweitzer and Noah Groniger. We here at the Elite Sports Podcast urge you not to let the doldrums of summer sports get you down because we are a mere two months away from the start of college football. And because of that, we are going to delve into a documentary that we are producing currently through GASN Films. It's called Saturday Supremacy, and we were able to go through the entire SEC uh, last fall, getting interviews, uh, filming the locations, doing tailgates. It was a crazy uh, three-month experience Please go for to SaturdaySupremacy.com so to check all that out. We're going to be the best out. of uh, the interviews from this uh, upcoming film that's uh, in production right now. Clint Schweitzer and Noah Groniger joining you here on the Elite Sports Podcast. And Noah... I don't know of anything more elite than some of the guests that we're going to have coming on here to talk about some of their experiences in the SEC and the NFL and otherwise, because this film, um, which hopefully will come out somewhere around 2020 or 21 or so. is that That's the- optimistic of you, yeah, but I, I, I hope so. <laughs> Got some great guests, though, coming up. We were able to go out and, and uh, interview a lot of people uh, in person, meeting up in various locations. Uh, we're going to be talking to Leanne Tui. She, of course, is uh, was played by Sandra Bullock in the movie The Blind Side, her character. She's, uh, you know, just an Ole Miss alum. Of course, her uh, adopted son, Michael Orr, I went to school there. We're going to be talking to her. We got Inky Johnson, inspirational, former Tennessee volunteer. Uh, Sean Weatherspoon, former Missouri Tiger. Eli Gold, he is the voice of the Crimson Tide. Brody Croyle. Uh, Jacquez Green, former Florida, uh, Florida Gator. Carlos Rogers, uh, former defensive back at Auburn. Uh, we just have a ton coming up for you. Yeah, these interviews are all going to be showcased in our film, Saturday Supremacy, but we thought we'd bring you some of the some some clips from those interviews and bring it into a podcast form, you know, because it is summer. The, the living is anything but easy, though. If you're a football fan, you're trying to, you know, find uh, preview articles. You're trying to see what your team's going to be like this year, and uh, you can come here to the Elite Sports Podcast because we always have your back when it comes to football, and we've got that uh, going for you right here. We're going to keep it rolling because we have some great guests on this show. Uh, You won't find this anywhere else. Our SEC coverage is going to be immaculate throughout this year. You can always get us on our website, gasnsports.com. A lot of content, a lot of articles, and our podcast is available there. And guess what? As of this moment right here, we are official uh, credentialed members of the SEC media. And uh, it's very big for us. We're really excited to be covering the SEC this year. We'll be at Media Days uh, here in just a couple weeks, my friend. Absolutely. We'll be heading down to Birmingham, Alabama, to catch the SEC Media Days. We're going to have a one-on-one with Nick Saban. I'm sure that'll happen. We can make that happen, right? We're going to try. We're sure going to try. We're going to be at least in there, you know, with the other schmucks, getting their recorder up to his mouth as close as they can. 
trying to get a line out of them, but unfortunately, no autographs. Uh, that that's a real bummer for us. Uh, if you try and get an autograph for someone, you are shooed away, whisked out, and kicked out of SEC Media Days. Uh, so I have to leave my uh, Nick Saban underwear poster at home, and I won't be able to take it with me. That's sad. I, you still bring it with you. We just won't uh, ask for the signature. Um, this is great for us. So we're you know. You can officially call us, I guess, SEC aficionados. You know, we've, we're working on our second SEC documentary. This is a big one, Saturday Supremacy. Our first one was called Stadium Crashers, where we just went and crashed all the stadiums. It was a cool story nonetheless. This one, much bigger scale. We spent a whole year. Uh, it's hard, crazy to think that it's coming up on a year ago that we started this journey, and we're going to be filming and doing some more stuff for it this season because the SEC, the story of the Southeastern Conference, can't just be told in one season. That's what we found out because of the shooting schedules and timing and equipment failures and uh, all the problems we had, rain. and Absolutely. we got some more interviews ahead of us. Uh, we've got SEC Media Days, which is going to be a part of the film. Definitely looking forward to that. But we start off this podcast at the Big Oak Ranch with Brody Croyle, former Alabama Crimson Tide quarterback, former Kansas City Chiefs quarterback. Yes, we're going to get into a myriad of topics with Brody Croyle uh, from his time at Alabama. Um, also, with the Kansas City Chiefs, the Hard Knocks, his uh, bat quarterback battle with uh, Damon Heward, and delving into the similarities and differences, mostly differences, between his co coaches, Herm Edwards and Todd Haley. Can you talk about the game of, of football today and just <coughs> you getting crushed? I knew you were I mean, going to go down that path. If Tom Brady can get rules changed, why couldn't you? Could you play it in the game today with all the rules? Hey, man, somebody get flag football out there. I can still do it. I can zing it. Just <laughs> don't let nobody hit me, please. <laughs> no, it, it, but it is. It's a different game now, and it, it'll be a different game in five years. It'll be a really different game in ten years. And uh, you know what? And it is protecting people, and it does make people – allow their kids to go out there and play and you know you can like it and you not like it whatever it might be uh those guys now are so big and so fast and so strong that uh there there had to start being some parameters set in place you know or something bad was going to happen and uh you know at this point in time yeah is it is it easy to say you know the quarterbacks are getting treated one way do i sit there and go Boy, I wish somebody had thrown a flag for that for me. I don't, my back wouldn't hurt quite as bad. My knees wouldn't either. But you know what? Those guys are what makes the game fun to watch too. You know, you, you watch the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes and that guy's electric. you got to protect that. And uh, whether defenses like it or not, it's the, it's, the, it's the rules of the game and it's how the game has evolved and it will continue to. Yeah. Can you talk about your quarterback battle with Damon Heward? Just kind of your relationship together as you're trying to win the starting job. He's trying to win it out there. You guys are battling each day in practice. You know, you you are battling. You are competing. Uh, but you know what's what's interesting is media makes a whole lot different game of it than what we do. Because uh, yes, you're competing, but honestly, you compete every day, especially at that level. I remember somebody telling me once I got done, "Welcome to the real world and the real world life problems." I went. Has anybody ever showed up every Tuesday and tried to get your job? Because every single day that I played and every single week that I played and every single year that I played, there was always someone on a Tuesday, on our off day, up there working out, throwing, trying out for scouts, trying out for coaches. And you know what? If they're cheaper, healthier, younger, I'm out of a job mm -hmm. if I'm not up there doing my job. So uh, it's, it's no different. You're, you're competing uh, nonstop. You're competing to be the best version of yourself. 
and uh, Damon and I had a great relationship, and uh, man, he um, he was he was a great mentor to me in so many ways beyond football. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, you guys were uh, on in at the Hard Knocks, I think, in 2007. Uh, did you guys ever get together, watch that, see what the coaches, they go in the meeting room, see what they're saying about you, Dick Curl and Herm Edwards, and <laughs> see who had the upper hand that day Man, in the meetings by the, the coaches? It's uh, hard, hard knocks was fun to watch, you know, later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're in it, you don't care. Yeah. You're just, you're competing, you're playing, you're about to start truly a grind of a season. You know, I think that's the hardest thing for college guys to really get into. One, this is now your profession. And you're expected to show up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You're expected to leave at 8 o'clock at night. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. That's voluntary. But so is your employment. So it's like that's the immediate grind. But then you've got 20 weeks solid of games that uh, you know twice as long as college football season. So you, you're more focused on preparing your mind, preparing your body uh, for what's about to come up. And you don't really get into all that. It's fun now. You know, because they replay it every, seems like, training camp. And now that I'm getting older, you know, some of the kids at the ranch are like, hey, man, I watched you, this, 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 this. So it's uh, just glad we kind of handled ourselves in a halfway decent way yeah. while on the show. <laughs> but uh, Todd Haley, you played for him. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was a very different personality than Herm Edwards, former player, kind of a player's coach, mm -hmm. to a guy who I believe his dad uh, – Todd's dad was a general manager. He hadn't played. He played golf in college and was on your ass. I'll just go ahead and say that every single day. Mm. What was that like going from Herm to Todd? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was obviously polar opposites. Uh, but uh, one, I love, love, I love, love Herm Edwards and still have a relationship with Herm to this day. Uh, uh, Herm's actually come up here and gone to one of our golf tournaments before and come and visited the ranch and you know, uh, I'll never forget the first meeting I was in with Herm. You know, he said, guys, I, I don't care about how many Pro Bowls you've been to. I don't care about how many All Pros. I don't care how much money you make. He said, none of that matters to me. He said, I'm worried about you Monday to Saturday. He said, because if I can get you to be a good man, a good husband, a good father, he said, I know I'll get a good teammate and I'll get a good player because I know the talent that you have. He said, but I want to focus on you as a man. He said the measure of a man's success is not in how much wealth he acquires, but how he affects those around him in a positive way. He said, I, I, I want you to be that man. And it just made a profound impact on my life that this guy's sitting here and he's basically running this billion dollar business, but he's, he's more focused on me. And he created a relationship. He wasn't just focused on the rules. There was other people that were focused on the rules. He was focused on the relationship and it's amazing the guy that I had the relationship with, I still have a relationship with to this day. The guy that focused on the rules, never really talked to him again. So it, it, it just, it, it, it proved a great valuable life that truly relationship does change everything. And he's still focused on that today. He'll call and be like, hey man, you doing all right? How's Kelly, how's the boys? How's the ranch, everything doing good? You doing everything that you're supposed to be doing? He still to this day invests, and he couldn't be in a better place right now investing in young men uh, and what he's doing right now. But, you know, Todd, Todd gets a bad rap a lot of times about always constantly being on you and all that. Uh, but I, I told Todd this. Uh, I just said, man, I said, if, if, when you siphon through all that, and I, I think he's probably a different person now than he was, you know, even then. But 
I mean, you, you siphon through all of that. There was always a great message behind it. He was always coaching. He was always pushing. He was always trying to get the best out of you. It's just some people couldn't couldn't take that. They couldn't accept that because they were so focused on the yelling and the screaming that they didn't they didn't hear the message. And uh, so I, I appreciate Todd, and I appreciate a lot of the messaging uh, that uh, he brought through. Uh, just it came in a very animated form at times. Do you know how <laughs> Matt took that? He, he was on Matt a lot, coming back to the sideline, riding him all the way back to the bench. He'd turn his back to the play. Matt would try to walk away. He'd be riding him all the way down. Uh, did Matt ever talk to you about what Man, his thoughts on that, if they differed from yours? You'll have to ask Matt about yeah. that. Good try, though. <laughs> yeah, I got to try. Uh, good try. <laughs> Our next journey here on the Saturday Supremacy Tour um, took us to Atlanta, where we were able to catch up with uh, former Auburn, former Washington Redskin, former San Francisco 49er corner, Carlos Rogers. He was an All-American, of course, at Auburn, was part of that undefeated 2003 team, and he went on to play uh, with the San Francisco 49ers and was a teammate of uh, Colin Kaepernick. So we're going to ask him about, uh, about Colin and about being a teammate of his, as well as what it was like, how he feels being an Auburn Tiger now uh, in hindsight. Owners, everybody knows he should have a job. I don't care if you don't look at him as a starter again because in San Fran, you know, his last two years wasn't good. So, but he still should be a backup, period. But with all the stuff that he brings and they looking at it as a negative attention, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that again. And as a player, uh, uh, a guy that played with him, you hate it for him. But if you're on the other side as the owner, you will understand it. It's like, okay, this is my business. I'm here to make money. I'm here to pay you to play football. All the politics and things like that, that's not in my control. I'm not, you know, so that's how they looking at it. And, you know, you got to look, I look at it from both sides and I understand it. I only lost to him. They were my, your stepbrother then. Yeah, I only lost to him one time. That was my freshman year. <laughs> but um, that was fun, you know, coming out of, coming out of high school, of course, I didn't pass my SAT and ACT, so I had to go to prep school. I went to Hargrave for a year. And um, during that process, you know, schools would recruit me in high school, but a lot of schools wanted me to go to JUCO. And then that was gonna be two years gone, and then I only had two years once I got to college. So, Auburn was the school that stepped in, was like, you can do prep school, and go down and get your SAT up, SAT up and ACT, and then you can come in and you have all your years. And they stuck by me, so once I went there, it was just automatic. I was going Tommy there. And Tommy and at the time, it was like, we got some guys in, but it was a mix up of who's starting. So it wasn't like, okay, this a lot. You come in, you can play hard, you compete for a starting job. And that's what I wanted to do. And I came in and ended up competing and ended up starting. I mean, what does Auburn mean to you today as you look back on your career? It's been you know, 14 years since you were on the planes in Auburn. Just, you know, when you see the team play now, or you know, you see, hear the fight song, and you see the colors, and you go back to game, what kind of feelings is that? It's an unbelievable feeling. Um, especially last year when I was able to get honored. Um, team captain enjoyed the game, was honored for all SEC legends. Um, and then they talked about that and had me on the field and enjoyed the game. So it was an unbelievable experience to go out there and actually see the, um, the eagle fly and how excited all the fans get. It brings tears to you because you know, we never, we never seen that playing. And then when I, once I go back, you know, I'm up in the, up in a suite somewhere, so I'm really not down on the field. And that game, it just brought chills, and you wanted to play again. 
but every time I go back that special time, they make me feel good. They make me feel welcome. It's always, can you come back? Can you can, just give us a few plays? <laughs> you know, so can you help these DBs out? So they feel, I feel like they still miss me, but I feel like they appreciated what I did for the school. And I really appreciate them always welcoming me with open arms every time I step there. Our next trip down the interview path takes us back to Alabama, and we talk to the voice of the Alabama Crimson Tide, Eli Gold, where we ask him, is all this winning for Alabama, is it really good for college football? Is it good for the entirety of college football? What are his thoughts on that? We also talk about kind of the other venues and what his thoughts are on that, and does Tuscaloosa really stand out for him as the premier venue in all of college football? We did this one right on the front porch of his house. This is a special one. He invited us over, had to go through a gated community, and he let us in and to do this interview on his front porch while he sat in his rocking chair wearing his Crimson Tide polo. Huge experience for us. The juggernaut that you do see now, you know, we go a lot of places. Obviously, we've been a lot of places at the SEC, and a lot of people say that this is bad for college football. What, what, do you, what is your response to that? It's not bad for college football. It generates a story. Whether you like or dislike Alabama, people watch and are intrigued with this story. Uh, the New York Yankees' run of World Series titles wasn't bad for baseball. Last I checked, college basketball had survived the UCLA John Wooden juggernaut. So no, it's not bad for football. It generates a lot of added interest. Can Mizzou knock off Alabama? Can LSU knock off Alabama? Will the trip to Tennessee be the one where the tide gets knocked off? There are ongoing stories week in and week out. So no, I don't see it uh, as being bad. Somebody said to me the other day on an interview that I did out in Honolulu, I was on a radio station out there, and the guy said, it's almost an embarrassment of riches. And I said, no, because nobody here's embarrassed. So uh, it's not an embarrassment of riches. This conference is so steeped in tradition and pageantry, and that's one thing that we're learning along the way. I mean, you've called games in every stadium in this conference. Um, is that something that you kind of get into? Do you kind of immerse yourself in, in each place you go and just kind of talk about some of the your experiences and places sure. that... you, you certainly get caught up in the atmosphere how can you not you know you walk into a sold-out Vaught Hemingway Stadium you walk into a sold-out Neyland Stadium let alone Jordan Hare down at Auburn uh, it doesn't matter where you go this past weekend in, in Fayetteville uh, you walk in you have friends in those cities people we've met over the years you have favorite restaurants to go to uh, where you know people are always poking at you in a nice way uh, so sure you get caught up in the atmosphere and that hopefully is what makes one's broadcast a little bit better you can share those happenings those moments what went on at Herman's restaurant in Fayetteville on a Friday night whatever it might be uh, so sure that's that's all part of what a broadcast is about you you integrate those those happenings the atmosphere, the, the whatever it might be, into the broadcast to make the listener who's hundreds or thousands of miles away feel as though he's there. Talk about Tuscaloosa what and Brian Denny Stadium, which has gone through uh, several renovations. It's, over, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's in the 100,000-seat club at this point. Right. Just talk about kind of a, a, a college game day experience in Tuscaloosa, maybe what kind of sets it apart. 
Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's the nicest stadium in America. Now, I know I look at life through crimson-colored glasses, and I plead guilty as charged, but it is a beautiful setting. Uh, the atmosphere, more often than not, with all 101,821 seats occupied, uh, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Now, you ask me what the periphery is like. Well, I've never tailgated in my life. We're already on the air. So I don't know what goes on outside. I've never uh, thrown a, a brat on the grill outside a football stadium. So uh, from that standpoint, I'm kind of at a loss. I can't add to your conversation. But as far as the overall atmosphere and people going into and out of the Bryant Museum and all else that goes on, for my money, there's nothing like it. Well, back to Atlanta, we went for our next interview because after we interviewed Carlos Rogers in the pouring rain on a patio of a restaurant in a suburb of Atlanta, we had to go travel about an hour away because Atlanta traffic is insane uh, in the rain to the home of Inky Johnson. He is the inspirational speaker, former Tennessee volunteer that uh, got hurt. His career and life almost ended after a earth-shattering hit against Air Force back in 2006. We talk about what it was like for him um, keeping a positive attitude moving on in his life, finding a new career path, and also what it was like uh, being a mentor uh, to former Chief Safety Eric Berry. I was just thinking, man, it was, it was a regular game. And to be honest with you, when I talked to my position coach uh, prior to the season starting, he shared with me that I was in position uh, to go to the NFL. All I had to do was finish up that season. And I remember sharing with my mother, uh, my grandmother, it was like after the season, like our lives are about to change. Like, be a different experience. And so the first game we came out, played against California Bears. We got the victory, did well, uh, had a great game. Second game playing against Air Force. It was just under two minutes left in the game. Game is basically over. And when I went to make this tackle, I just thought it was a routine tackle. But when I hit the guy, it was awkward. It seemed as if like every breath in my body left. My body went completely limp, fell to the ground, blacked out, and never happened to me before been in a lot harder collisions. And when I came to, I couldn't move. It was a shock from my head to my toes. I couldn't feel anything. It left my body, stayed in my right arm and hand. They get me over to the hospital. They run a couple of tests. They take me back into the room. And nobody is thinking it's serious until a doctor runs in and he's saying that, you know, this guy can die. You know, he's fighting for his life. And at that point, I'm thinking like, what? Like it's surreal for me. I'm thinking it's a bad dream. And he shares with me, you rupture your subclavian artery in your chest, you're bleeding internally. Got to take the main vein out of your left leg, plug it into your chest in order to save your life. And when they were doing that surgery, they noticed that I had nerve damage in my right shoulder, my brachial plexus. And so the next morning they shared with me that my career was probably over. You know, and at that point, I'm still thinking that, you know, maybe I'll rehab and come back because I had been through so much in my life that I was like, like I've been told I, I won't make it before. Like, that's my space, I thrive in that. And so it wasn't too much of a scare to me. I was still thinking, yeah, I hear you, but I, I've been through things before. And when I was going to doctor's visits and it was starting to set in, like, man, this thing is serious. Like, it's probably really over. And when it hit, hit, I remember thinking to myself, like, man, like, what's next? You know, like, what are you gonna do now? Right, but on this specific day, September 9th, 
2006, the outcome for some reason was totally different and I almost lost my life. I woke up the next day, had a paralyzed right arm and hand, had got cut all over my body, had to learn how to almost walk again. Like my life was totally different from Saturday to Sunday, right? And so when I tell people, it's the connection of people are so arrogant, right? And they feel as if if they do something and do it well, that they're just entitled to it and they'll automatically get the opportunity to do it next week or do it tomorrow. Well, what you see when you look at me is you might not get tomorrow. No matter how well you do it, it's probably promised to you that you're going to make it. But something can happen today and everything you work for could disappear in a moment. Right. And so when people look at me, I think it's a wake up call and it's a reminder that, oh, man, life can really change. Right. Because a person can think they're in control of life. Right. And that's a fantasy. None of us are. And then um, we mentioned Eric Berry. You talked a little bit about your guys' relationship. What was the feeling you had when he got drafted number five to the Kansas City Chiefs? Mm -hmm. And then was there a conversation or what were your feelings when you heard he was going to don your number 29? Man, when Eric got drafted, I talked to Eric that night when he walked off stage. Um, he told me he was going to wear 29 in honor of me. And I said to him, like, man, you don't have to do that. And he was like, no, you don't know what you did for me. And I said, man, you know, you're a great player, man. You could pick your own number. It's like your dad was a great player. Pick your dad's number. I was like, no, man, you don't have to pick my number. And he was like, no, Ink, you don't know what you did for me. And so for me, like, that was a, um, a special moment. Because even now, when we watch Eric play, um, my son gets to see it and see that 29 and know the story behind it. My family gets to see it. They know the story behind it. They know Eric. Right, like we got a game ball. My son probably took it down. It's special. You know, like on it, he got wrote honor and legacy. That's the thing that I always said to him in his speech. That's what he mentioned, you know, in that speech that when he was on stage, he said, my big brother Inky Johns taught me honor and legacy, right? And what that was, was I told him, you honor the people that paved the way for you and you leave a legacy for the people that's coming behind you. Yeah, so football is, is something that's very important to me. Um, because I think in terms of just the game, um, a lot of people miss the boat in terms of players, right? In terms of what the game can produce if you go at it the right way. I always tell guys who you are as a person will always be far more important than who you are as an athlete. We've been provided this incredible platform to play sports. Some will make it on to the next level of the NFL, some won't. But if you go about it the right way, you can extract certain things from it, whether it be dedication whether it be commitment, whether it be focus, right? And extract that and apply it to other areas and aspects of your life and you'll become successful no matter what you do. And so football for me is something that's very important, especially with what I do now in sharing my message with different guys and groups and teams. Where were you when you heard the news, you saw Eric go down, then you heard the news that he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and talk about his battle with that and just his courage through that. And I believe uh, after a chemo treatment, he went out to a field and started practicing. Talk, talk about Eric as a person, a leader, and his character going I through was, that. I was watching a game uh, when he went down, and I didn't think it was obviously cancer. I just thought he plays the game, you know, reckless abandon. And um, he texts me um, not long after that, and he texts me, he said, big bro, you got a minute. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And he called right after that. 
And that's when he told me that, um, you know, they found a mass in his chest, the size of a softball, and he had to come down to Emory to run more tests. And then they diagnosed him with cancer. And uh, we went to breakfast. I took him to breakfast, to homegrown, over off of Memorial Drive, over on my side of town in Atlanta. It's a breakfast spot. We went, we ate, and we just talked about life, not even a situation. We just talked about life, you know, and um, living life a certain type of way. And I was encouraging him, let him know that, man, you're prepared for this. Like, because we always spoke about um, being prepared for the victory before the battle happens, right? And I was sharing with him, this is the moment. This is what I speak to you about, preparing for the victory before the battle even happens. And so you're prepared for it. Now all you have to do is embrace the process. And we would go to church together. And of course, his parents were great, man, great support staff he has already in place. And uh, yeah, man, he left chemo one day and um, he went to run 400s. And when he first was talking about it, I'm like, you're doing what? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm staying on my routine. I'm still doing my 400s. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, after chemo? And he was like, yeah, I'm still doing them, eh? And um, when it happened, I'm like, man, this guy's an animal, right? Just to do that. And so when he came back, I was at the game, his first game back, when he ended up winning comeback player of the year that season. I was at his first game back in Arrowhead. I was on the sideline, me, his father, his uncle, and a couple of uh, the other friends. The Broncos game. Yeah, and when he came Joe out, Charles man. Charles fumbled in the last yep. game and lost. That, that game. <laughs> and when he came out the tunnel, it was just like, wow. Like the process, he survived it. And he came back and he balled, man. But I think he balled that way because he was strong enough and had the fortitude to go throughout the process but still keep his routine intact. Before making our way down to a Florida Gators against Missouri Tigers big matchup, we had to stop off at Tallahassee on a cold, blustery night in Florida. For Floridians. Yes, I think 67 degrees, everyone in blankets, huddled together, uh, just trying to stay warm, wondering if they'll survive the night. But we caught up with former Florida Gator Jacquez Green as he was coaching his high school football team. A big win on the night for them. We got to catch up with him afterwards as he talked about the power of the SEC, why he wanted to choose and play for an SEC school, and why Florida stood out to him about Spurrier and uh, the three and four wide receiver sets that really kind of caught his eye. And of course, Missouri's involvement in the SEC. Um, I always wanted to play in the SEC. When I was getting recruited, I told my high school coach that I want to play in the SEC. You know, so basically, let the ACC schools and all the other schools that recruit me go on. My choice is going to be between four or five SEC schools. And um, Georgia recruited me. Um, they, they wanted me to play cornerback. And that was one of the main hangups right there. I was a high school quarterback. So I didn't want to play defense. And so I wasn't sure of my skills. So I knew if I go to Florida, Spurrier played three and four wide receivers. So I knew I didn't have to start to be able to get on the field at Florida. And I took a visit. And the visit I took was when we played Florida State. So going to a Florida, Florida State game as your first University of Florida game, that was a big influence on my decision. I played with a bunch of guys that played in the NFL. You know? And um, you know, before I came to the University of Florida, they was on the cuffs of, of winning the championship. I knew that we get a couple of good recruiting classes in there. We'll win one eventually. Um, we won one you know, that year. We won one my, in 96. In 95, we, we played in the championship game. We got beat by Nebraska. But the thing about that game is we brought a lot of guys back the next season. So we knew we'd have a good chance to win the national title again. And we had a lot of things happen you know, for us the next year in 96 with, um, with the Arizona State beating Nebraska in the bowl game. And 
Texas A&M, I think they upset Nebraska in some game, and a bunch of bunch of dominoes fell our way. And so we knew that night, the night before the game that we played Florida State, that if we beat Florida State, it was a good chance we'll be national champs. A lot of people don't really understand that, like why we chant SEC, because we really feel that our brand of football is the best football in the country. You can always go into SEC team's uh, backyard and have a chance to lose in our conference. It's not like that in every conference. No, a lot of conferences. Uh, Big Ten, Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan, Michigan State, they're they going to win most of the time. In our conference, right now you got Kentucky in the top ten. You know, you'll never think Kentucky would be a football school. And every stadium in our conference is packed, no matter what the record is. You can go to Vanderbilt at, in, in late late December or middle of December, and it's going to be a packed house. So our fans just love football in the conference. And also the best athletes, other than California and Texas, the best athletes come from the South. So all the best athletes come from the South. They go to Southern schools, so you're going to have great football in the SEC. The thing is, no, that everybody laughed about Missouri when they came into the conference and they went to the SEC championship game the first two years. So um, Missouri is known for having a great offense. They, they can score points. Um, I think it's going to be a tough game next week. Like I always said, it's tough to win on the road in the SEC. Um, I think we've got a good defense this year at Florida. No, we can cut down the mistakes on offense, run the football. I think we've got a great chance to beat those guys. Well, this was a special one. We got an email from uh, this next guest, publicist, about two days before um, an Ole Miss-Alabama game. We were getting ready to head down to Oxford to take in the Grove and uh, hit up the Alabama-Ole Miss game. Um, and instead, we had to make it down there a little quicker because... Uh, Leanne Tui was able to do an interview with us. She invited us up to her suite, which is right next to the Mannings, her suite at Vaught Hemingway Stadium, to do this interview. Um, her husband, Sean Tui, was in there. Her uh, daughter, Collins, was in there. Of course, you remember them from the film The Blind Side. Um, Sandra Bullock played her character in the film, of course. But we talked about a myriad of topics, uh, including just her thoughts on uh, Ole Miss, the SEC, and uh, how her life changed, of course, and her family's life changed after the movie The Blind Side. And we also hear that Michael almost went to LSU. Well, I mean, you know, I'm speaking from a passionate point of view about the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. I think that it's just it's very um, inviting. It's very welcoming. There's just something unique about the spirit here. It's hard to explain, but it's like no one meets a stranger. Everybody has a smile on their face, and uh, it's just it's just kind of all encompassing, which I think is great. It, it doesn't matter what your race, color, socioeconomic status, your anything, your authenticity. That it, it, we just don't see that here. I mean, it's like we you know we love everybody, and it's like you know you know to get really corny, it's like you know just a big group hug kind of thing. So. It is. It's a pretty special place. And I've been to a lot of um, universities out in the SEC, outside the SEC, and they're all great places. So, you know, I'm one of these. I'm a huge advocate of being a voice for your university, focusing on their positive aspects. And, you know, don't, don't talk bad about the other people. Talk good about your people. You know, Michael was probably headed to LSU if Nick Saban had to stay there. Nick left and went to uh, coach with the Dolphins. And I was all about purple and golden tigers. I mean, I look good in purple and gold. I'm a big tiger person. I was all in for that. SJ is coaching right now at the University of Arkansas, so we have this Fayetteville connection. I'd never been to Fayetteville and spent any amount of quality time. I'm fascinated by, by Fayetteville. Um, it, it has very similar characteristics of, of Oxford. But uh, my heart will always be here at Ole Miss. It, it'll always be here. And I, I, like I said earlier, I mean, you know, everybody knows that I'm not a big fan of the color orange. It really doesn't have anything to do. I'm born and raised in the, in the state of Tennessee. I am a, a volunteer. I, I love Tennessee. I love our heart as a state. The volunteer state is a perfect name for us. 
but um, I'm not going to be wearing orange. It's not a good color for me. So outside of the color orange, I don't really have a problem with the University of Tennessee. But no, I mean, I think all, I have been to every school in the SEC. I've been to most major stadiums through a series of events, whatever it might be. And, and there's not really one that I left that I went, oh, I'm not coming back here, you know. Now, there's a few NFL stadiums up in like that. Yeah, there definitely. So, but as far as collegiate football, you know, they're just good people that go to college football games. Um, yeah, you know, Sandra Bullock plays you in a movie and she wins an Oscar and, uh, her, you know, she, you, it just, it changes your life. It, it, it truly does. It's a very God-driven thing. Um, this is not by accident. The reality of it is that every single person, you and the people watching this, we all have a story. Everyone has a story. Our story just happens to be the one that got told. And it just happened to resonate with people and it, it just, it's amazing. We're, you know, nine, ten, nine years removed from this movie and it, it still it hasn't died down. I mean, it's constantly on TV. People are, are watching it still. It's, it's really crazy because I think it's so relatable to people because they look at it and they really are like, I want to do that or how can I do that or I want to do something like that. So it's crazy that this movie hits on so many different tentacles for so many different people. Before a big week two SEC-ACC clash between, between the Texas A&M Aggies and the Clemson Tigers, we had to catch up with former Aggie great Richmond Webb. The big left tackle went on to the NFL to play with the Miami Dolphins. We talked to him about his time at Texas A&M, what it meant to him, and moving on to the NFL and playing with Dan Marino, and also his battles, I mean absolute battles in the trenches with former Kansas City Chief great Derek Thomas. Um, what is Texas A&M mean to you now as an adult playing in the NFL for many years, being a seven-time Pro Bowler, but looking back and uh, is it you keep up with the program a lot? Is it something that just is kind of always a part of you? Is that how you? Yeah, you, you know, you become more of a fan, but I try to make it down for a couple games a year. And, uh, you know, we're transitioning this year to uh, uh, Coach Jimbo Fisher, and, you know, everybody's excited. I watched the first game. And, uh, you know, back to running a, more of a pro-style offense. And um, everybody's excited. You know, a lot of people focused on um, the salary that Coach Fisher got or whatever, but, you know, he's been battle-tested, he's been proven, he's won a national championship, and if you listen to him in the interview, you kind of know that he's going to get the the direction changed and headed in the way that everybody wants to go. So I'm a fan, and, uh, you know, I take it hard when we lose, or, or and I'm happy when we win, so um, I'm excited about this new era of Texas A&M. Just talk kind of about the transition to the SEC back when you played, not to date anybody, but Southwest Conference, yeah. then they moved to the Big 12, and now the SEC, and uh, how that transition has been for Texas a and what it's meant to the program in the university. I, I think it's been, um, you know, I'm old Southwest Conference guy, and then like you say, went to the Big 12. But um, I, I think it was great, you know, a lot of people kind of question why we're leaving the Big 12 and going to, you know, the SEC, but um, SEC is probably the top. Um, college football division in, in college. And if you can play in that division, they probably put more players in the, in the NFL than any other conference. I mean, I'd have to check a bit. I'm sure they, they're right up there. So um, just knowing you got to raise your level of play, it's normally a more physical style of football. But um, I think for the state of Texas, I think it was good for A&M, but it was good for the Southeastern Conference because you got the whole state of Texas. Now you got a whole uh, broaden your, your, your market and, and exposure stuff to the SEC. So um, it's been it's been great for Texas A&M. We hadn't actually won the, the West or made it to the SEC championship game, but 
those are some of the goals so I'm looking forward to us achieving that. Talking about the Dolphins and your time there and Dan Marino, the one thing about that Dan, when they argue that, oh, Dan Marino isn't the best of all time because he never won a Super Bowl, was that something that you know you thought about by the time you came in? He had played in one as a second-year player in, in 1985, but when you come in in 1990 and on through the 90s, was it something that started to weigh on, on the team? Or like, hey, we don't, you know, was there pressure there? Like Dan didn't have a Super Bowl. What was kind of the thinking there? I think the thinking was, um, you know, Coach Shula was there, but we always said high goals, high expectations. First thing was win a division. Uh, next thing was getting the playoffs, and then once the playoffs started, it was a whole new season. So try to put yourself in position to at least get in the playoffs, and if you could get a, a bye week, that was that was that was truly huge. But um, when I first came in, you know, Buffalo had where they went four straight Super Bowls, and I know two or three times we met them in the playoffs and and lost. So that was kind of our Achilles heel. But um, you know, football is a team sport, and it could be offense, it could be defense, it could be injuries, it could be several factors that that could cause you to fall short in, in, in trying to get a run to the Super Bowl. So I never really played much attention to that. You know, even Dan, he when I came in, he said, you know, don't take it for, for granted when you make it to the playoffs. He said, I went my first or second year in the league. And he said, I hadn't been back since. And he said, I thought it was just kind of automatic. We go year in, year out, but it didn't happen that way. So when you get that opportunity, I think everybody needs to know, hey, we need to make the most of this opportunity now because you might not get it again. Um, we, of course, grew up in Kansas City and big okay. Chiefs fans and watched uh, the Chiefs. We talked about the make the playoff year, year after year. We did make it six straight years and always fell short. But you've played against uh, Derek Thomas, went up head-to-head -head with, with DT. What, yeah. what was that like? One of the fastest guys I ever had to play against. Um, that first step. Yeah, first step. Actually, we played against him in college. Um, we played, it was, a, it was um, the Hurricane Bowl, and we were supposed to play early in the year, but it was a hurricane came through Texas, and they moved the game to December, so um, played against him. Keith McCants was there. I mean, they had a pretty all-star um, defense, but um, one of the fastest guys, but you just knew he was the type of guy for a defensive player could swing the momentum with just one play. You know, he just had that. And, he was on one side and Neil Smith was on the other side and then you know we can go through the secondary with Alba Lewis and all those guys. It was just um, y'all had some good teams so we knew we had to be ready to play. Yeah. How many times did you complain to the officials that Derek Thomas was offside? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew that would have worked if we played seventy plays, I'd have complained seventy five, I tell you that. But yeah, um, just I you know, Lawson, he was a good friend of mine on and off the field, got to know him. And uh, matter of fact, he was from the Miami area, so yeah. I knew his mom and stuff like that. So um, just hated to see you know him lose, and he was big as far as giving back to the community, getting kids. I think it was a reading program. Or Third and Long Foundation. Third and Long Foundation. Long, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, got a lot of respect for Derek Thomas. Our last interview for this podcast is a special one for me as someone that covered the uh, career of Sean Weatherspoon at Mizzou and also with the Atlanta Fa Falcons slash uh, Arizona Cardinals. Uh, we were able to catch up with uh, Spoon after the Mizzou-Georgia game, which was very very early in the season. Uh, Sean Weatherspoon had actually predicted victory on Twitter for Missouri. It didn't quite happen. Missouri fell short that day, but a beautiful day in Columbia, Missouri, and Sean Weatherspoon was back to talk about the new stadium renovations, um, his thoughts on uh, Mizzou and the team, and uh, what 
it was like for him playing in the Big 12, playing against SEC teams as a member of the Big 12 back in uh, 2006, 7, and 8. Well, it's always great to be back home. You know, I feel like this place is it's home for me. Anytime I'm back, it's always, you know, first-class treatment. And, you know, I really enjoy coming to watch the Tigers play. Now, unfortunately, we didn't get the win today, but I think um, we kind of saw what our Tigers are capable of. And, you know, a few things today that kind of shot us in the foot. So you look at that, go back to the drawing board and X out those mistakes. And I think next week you find yourself in a better position. Well, you see uh, some changes here in the stadium. Taking down the south end zone here looks a little different than when you played here. Uh, what's it say about Missouri and its commitment to win here in the SEC? Well, you know, the SEC is big-time football. And, um, you know, it's a lot of money behind these programs. And you go to these stadiums throughout the southeast and you see that they really, you know, roll it out and they do it to the utmost, utmost way. So I think um, Missouri is kind of catching up to that. And um, it's going to be nice here in the South Zone. You made, uh, you know, you and your guys had a lot of success in the Big 12. Won the, you know, the Big 12 uh, North a couple times. Uh, you see Missouri play in the SEC. Does it see some of these teams like Georgia, you know, you play for the Falcons, but, you know, we want to get out. Some of these yeah. programs bust some heads with some of these guys. Hey, you know what? I, um, when I went to the Senior Bowl, I talked to a lot of the guys that played at SEC schools. And, you know, the two, two SEC teams we played when I was here in school, we didn't lose to them, so I had no, in my opinion, was a little bit biased from that standpoint, but I'm um, looking forward to seeing, you know, what these guys can do moving forward, but I always talk about if I had a chance at Georgia, if I had a chance at Alabama, you know, those things probably would have put me in a better draft position, you never know, <laughs> but it's um, some great football in the SEC, though. Well, your career, you had a wonderful career. Thank you. Suffered through some injuries. Yeah. Where, where are you, how you feeling now? Well, right now, right now I'm doing great, man. I'm a free agent, so I'm just training and make sure I stay in shape, and when I get that call, I'll be ready to go. Well, I represent the Chiefs, and we'll be your sign. Congratulations. <laughs> you play tomorrow against the 49ers. Oh, man, you know what? That'd be great. Uh, I have to say hello to Mr. Andy Reid there and, and the management there. That'd be dope if I can come to the Chiefs. Thanks so much, my right, friend. Thank you, Appreciate you. Well, there you go. There's just a little taste of what we went through uh, last season, getting all these big interviews. We have a lot more that are going to be in the film. We just wanted to use some of those, some of our best ofs, if you will, uh, for a podcast here to get kind of people's attention, to, to notify them that we are working on this documentary. It's been a labor of love for us. It's going to be out, hopefully, like I said, 2021. Somewhere in there. And uh, SaturdaySupremacy.com, you can get more information on it, kind of uh, our journey, our story. Our first film, um, which was Stadium Crashers, that uh, came out in 2016. So, again, we're SEC official now. We are officially members, accredited members of the SEC media. And uh, it's going to be so fun for us going forward, making this film, covering the conference next year. What a hodgepodge of information that you're going to receive from us. You can get it all uh, here on the Elite Sports Podcast and our website, GASNsports.com. Absolutely. We cannot wait to get down to SEC Media Days. We're credentialed all season for Mizzou next year. We've got so many interviews coming up uh, for this film. We've got we've got to get Tim Brando in. We've got to get Randall Godfrey in. We've got to have them in the film. Uh, so we're going to be busy this summer doing that at SEC Media Day. And just getting all this lined up, it was great to catch up with Brody Croyle, get to the Big Oak Ranch. And if you want to see more of these pictures, if you want to get a visual of us out there with these people doing these interviews out on the road, 